Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll get we'll get going here. If you got a bulletin when you came in, then you would see that our topic, our, our final Jesus habit is rest today. Um, we are ending our Jesus habit series today, and next week we will start our August series talking about serving one another. Charles Spurgeon lived in the 1800s. He was a Baptist pastor and author from England. His sermons and exposition of scripture are some of the most well-known in the world. And he said, sometimes the most spiritual thing a person can do is sleep. Sometimes the most spiritual thing a person can do is sleep. In his book, When I Relax, I Feel Guilty, Author Tim Hansel says, more today than ever, we need to learn how to give ourselves permission to relax, to play, to enjoy life, and to enjoy God for who he is. This month, we've been doing this series called Jesus Habits. It's based off of a devotional book that you can find on Amazon. Someone gave it to me about 10 years ago, and there are 31 Jesus habits in this book. We didn't do 31 habits, but we chose a few of them. We did building relationships, um, confrontation, giving, and today we're doing rest. And it seems fitting to talk about rest today, given that I'm recovering from a concussion and the only way to recover is to let the brain rest. So we're gonna jump into the talking about rest. In central Pennsylvania, we pride ourselves on working really hard, right? Many of us that's here or tuning in online who live in this area are only a couple generations removed from working on the farm from sunup to sundown. Some of you who are here today, that is your profession. That was your life, working on the farm from sunup to sundown. And the work you put into the crops directly correlated to what was on the table and what you could sell at the market. So our, our Lancaster County work ethic is deeply ingrained in us, but it goes much deeper than that. It's not just because we're an agricultural-based community. At the turn of the 19th century, there was a sociologist named Max Weber, and he coined the term Protestant work ethic he noted that Christians of the Protestant variety, and just so you know, that would be Lutherans, Baptists, Anabaptists, Quakers, Methodists, Mennonites, Amish, uh, and more, people who were Protestant had work ethic concepts that emphasized diligence, discipline, and frugality. This work ethic viewed worldly work as something that benefited the individual and society. And so as you think about your work ethic and what your parents poured into you, I want you to consider whether that's something you agree with. 
hard work benefits the individual and the society. You've probably heard some of these statements before. That behavior is nothing that a little hard work won't fix. Or maybe a parent that talks about their child and says, I really hope that he or she becomes a productive member of society. Or maybe you've heard your grandparents tell you, if you don't work hard to take care of what's been given to you, then you aren't being a good steward, right? Any of those sound familiar to you? I'm seeing nods, good. Protestants didn't believe that their hard work gained them salvation. We don't get salvation by doing hard work. But Protestants do view frugality, being good with your money, as good stewardship. And we view hard work as a way that we can bless others. So Protestants, all those different denominations that I mentioned before, they adopted hard work, frugality, discipline, and diligence into their lives as a way to live out their faith, right? Are you with me? Is that something you were brought up with, something you've even heard in the church before? Okay. Now, we, we can agree, we can nod our heads, we can even laugh at the idea of a Lancaster County work ethic um, because we'll all sit back and we'll agree that God commands rest, that he honors rest, that he blesses rest, but then we won't rest. Um, we'll tell others to rest, but we won't rest. We can agree that God created six days out of seven, and he saved one for rest, but in the back of our minds, some of us wonder why God wasted a perfectly good workday, right? I'll be upfront with you. I don't have this one figured out. For Father's Day, Journey's preschool had her answer a bunch of questions about her father, and one of the questions says, what does your dad like to do? And she answered, work. <laughs> Which is true. I like to work. I really enjoy it. But it's also true that I need to get better at rest. So this morning, this is a growth area for me. I don't have it figured out. But if you can admit, like me, that you aren't very good at resting, taking a break, at slowing down, then maybe we'll be postured to learn something together this morning. Like the other weeks that I've done the Jesus Habits, I wanna start out by giving you a list of the enemies of the habit of rest. And I put those in your bulletins. So if you have a bulletin, there's a little piece of paper in there, like a bookmark, and it has the enemies of the habit of building rest. And hopefully you've kept your bookmarks for the series because today I'm gonna to get you to use them. Number one, the number one habit, or excuse me, enemy of the habit of building rest is busyness. This is when we say, I just don't have the time to rest. We never have enough time to accomplish all that we want to do or have to do. We're overworked, we're overstressed, and we can hardly see past the next appointment or commitment to even think about rest. We take our week vacation to the beach or to a cabin somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and we wonder why it takes all week to get to a place where we can breathe deeply and stop thinking about all that we must do just in time to come back home, right? We're busy. Number two is guilt. And this is one that I think we feel strongly here in Lancaster County. 
I will feel guilty if I don't work enough. We talk about this already. If I don't keep busy, then I must be doing something wrong. That's what's ingrained in our head. If I'm not busy, I'm doing something wrong. And if I'm not busy, then I'm not stewarding something right. Because if I was stewarding everything right, I would be busy. This is the circular logic that floats through our brains when we think about work and rest. We think, I could always do more. I could always help more. And if I don't do enough, God might be mad at me for wasting my talents. Yeah? Anybody feel that? We even use that phrase, right? Wasting my talents. And that comes from a parable in Scripture that Jesus tells about a servant who wastes the talent given to him by the master. The interesting thing is, is that that parable has nothing to do with rest. And that that servant wasting his talents had nothing to do with rest. That servant wasted his talents because he had an improper, incorrect picture of the master. He thought the master was someone to be feared. The master was somebody that didn't work for what he got. And so he was scared of doing something wrong. It has nothing to do with rest. And yet in the back of our minds, that parable is all about working hard and stewarding our talents. Number three is unrealistic expectations. The job won't get done if I take the time to rest. Right? Or maybe you've heard this. I know I've been guilty of saying it. If you want the job right, then do it yourself. I will say this. There are moments that it is true if you want the job right, done right, then do it yourself. And there are moments where it is true that if you rest, you won't get the job done. But they are moments. It's not a lifestyle. What we have done is we've cultivated a lifestyle where we believe every day, if I stop, if I take a break, if I rest my body, then I won't get it done or it won't get done right. We need to stop cultivating that sort of lifestyle. And we need to stop pushing it on our children and our grandchildren, okay? A good work ethic is not opposite of rest. The last one here, number four, is overscheduling. And this is the I can't stop or I'll get so behind that I'll never get caught up. I think it's really similar to the previous one. It's a bit of an unrealistic expectation. But I want you to think of this. If you have a to-do list at home, or you have a to-do list floating around in your mind, if your to-do list is so long that if you stop, you'll never get to the end of it, then maybe there are some things on your to-do list that just aren't that important. If your to-do list is that long, then maybe you need to ask for help, and that would be a good growth area for you. If your to-do list is that long that you can't stop, then you are going to miss out on everything that is happening around you. Keeping your nose to the grindstone is good advice for a moment, but if you keep your nose to the grindstone forever, you won't have a nose left, right? Think about this. Think about tiredness. Think about making mistakes when you're tired. In the Challenger space shuttle disaster, NASA officials made the decision to launch after working 20 straight hours, 
and sleeping for only two or three. When the USS uh, Vicenne's battleship shot down an Iranian plane carrying 290 civilians, it was because the operators in the combat information center mistook radar information for an air attack rather than for a civilian plane. The investigation showed that the radar operators were overstressed and overfatigued. They were tired. And they mistook a civilian plane for a military one. Here are some highlights from a study done by the National Sleep Foundation. 63% of adults get less than the recommended eight hours of sleep. 31% get less than seven hours. I was just at the doctor this week, and he told me that there are a few people who can get by with less than eight hours of sleep, but the majority of people need eight hours of sleep. And when you don't get eight hours of sleep, you're working at a deficit already. So you might be sitting there thinking, well, I get five hours a night. I'm pretty good. I can do that. I've been doing that for years. If you got eight hours, you might be surprised at what you could do. 40% of adults have trouble staying awake during the day. <laughs> or during sermons, right? Um, sleep disorders affect 70 million people in the United States. And that's a lot, but here's a bigger one. Sleep disorders cost $100 billion a year in accidents, medical bills, and lost work. There is a price to pay for lack of sleep. Over the last five years, or the five years prior to the survey being taken, people in the US have increased their work hours and decreased their sleep hours, right? We're, we're robbing a part of our body that we need in order to do something else. It's a very real problem that we're trying to tackle this morning, okay? Rest is important. We've bought into the idea that we need to work hard to be good stewards of what we've been given. Overwork for maximum stewardship. Hear that again. Overwork for maximum stewardship. If we had to have a motto for America, I think that would be our motto. Overwork for maximum stewardship. And we do look up to people who somehow are able to do so much and produce so much and they don't sleep very much. I had a professor in seminary and he's very weird and probably has some disorders of some kind, but he only sleeps for two hours a night. And he has written, I don't know how many books. And I'm amazed by what he can produce and the level he can, but he is the exception, not the rule. And none of us should be trying to do the two hours of sleep and write a million books, right? It doesn't work. Overwork for maximum stewardship. I think that's backwards. Overworking decreases stewardship. See, when we talk about stewardship in the church, we're often talking about our wallet and our stuff, right? Those are the two things that we often talk about. But what if I told you you're not just a steward of all of this that God has given to you? What if I told you that you're also a steward of this? You are the temple. God has blessed you with a temple. We get one of those. 
Overworking doesn't show how much you want to steward all of this. It shows how little you value stewarding this. And that is something that we need to remember, and that is something that we need to start teaching our children so that they don't inherit our bad habits, so that our children can be healthier than we have been. Now, what if I told you that rest postures you for work? What if rest gets you ready for work? Sunday isn't the last day of the week. It's the first day of the week. And Sunday is the Sabbath. It's a time where we take a break. It's a time where we rest. It's a time that prepares us for the week ahead. What if rest prepares you, positions you, postures you, gets you ready for all of the work that God calls you to do? What if constantly going postures you to miss out on the work that God's calling you to? When I'm on the go, 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 I miss all kinds of stuff. When I took the role of executive director of a nonprofit, the budget was a million dollars, I had dozens of staff members, and I quickly concluded that I needed to be the best leader that I could be. I needed to be a better leader than I had ever been. Bed, oh, wrong word. I needed to be a better leader than I had ever been. Whatever I thought was good enough before was gonna need to be stepped up. Whatever I thought were long hours before were gonna need to be pushed past. Whatever I thought was great time management before was gonna need to be managed better. One of the things that I've used to manage my time for a long time is a Google, Google Calendar. And I, I say Google Calendar saved my marriage because Google Calendar allows Carissa and I to see the same calendar so we don't double book ourselves on things. I always kept the Google Calendar, but when I took that position, I started to attribute a time frame to every single thing that I needed to do. If I had a meeting, I gave it a time frame and I didn't depart from it. If I had a letter to write to constituents, I put it in my Google Calendar, I said 45 minutes, and I didn't depart from it. If I had a policy to invent or a budget to develop, I gave all of those blocks of time in my schedule. If I had a meeting off-site, I found Google Maps and said it takes 21 minutes to get there, 21-minute block in my schedule for my travel time, then my meeting time, 21 minutes home. I got a lot of stuff done. But if a staff member wanted to stop by and talk to me, I told them to make an appointment. My, my job is not to just incorporate you because you have a sudden need. Make an appointment and we'll talk about it. Which might not sound too terrible to you, but even my wife stopped dropping in with our son to say hi because she looked at the calendar and I appeared too busy. Staff members stopped dropping in to ask me for help with personal things because they always assumed that I was too busy. And when I would follow up with people or staff or my family and said, why didn't you just ask for help? They would say, well, I didn't want to bother you. You're so busy. My Protestant work ethic was unraveling my personal relationships. That's the honest truth. When we left that job and I came to Kanoi, I had promises to make to my wife that I wouldn't do that again. And that should tell you how serious it was 
for us. A pastor friend of mine told me that he deliberately only schedules six and a half hours of work in his eight-hour day because it gives him margin in his schedule to be interrupted by the unexpected staff member, phone call, or family member dropping by. He told me that he could figure out what to do with three quarters of his day, and he was certain that God would show him the rest. Something that I decided to adopt immediately. What if slowing down and unpacking our schedule and building rest into our lives actually prepares us for the task, the work, the mission, the relationship, or the person that God is calling us to? That's the question that I want you to keep thinking about. Rest is preparing you for what God is calling you to. Now, I want to look at some scripture this morning, but the scripture, our look at scripture is going to be a little different than it's been the other times I've done the, the habits. We're going to jump around a little bit, which is something that I try often not to do because context is incredibly important. I'm not going to take anything out of context, but there's something that I want to show you, and the only way I can show you is by jumping around. And this is where you'll need either a number of fingers or your bookmarks. And I'm going to encourage everybody to grab a Bible, whether you brought your Bible, you use your phone, or you need to grab one from the chairs around you. This is going to be much easier to see if you have a Bible in your hand. I want you to first go to Matthew chapter 8. And I think I, I have a slide. Yeah, there we go. These are all the places we're going to go. So if it's helpful to you to kind of look ahead and stick a bookmark in so you can flip between them, you can. We're going to go to Matthew 8. And what I want you to do is look at it and I, I ask this question. What is the very first thing you see happen in Matthew 8? Who comes to Jesus? A man with leprosy. And what does Jesus do? He heals him. So the first thing we see in chapter 8 is a, a leper comes to Jesus, and Jesus heals the person who is suffering, he immediately cleanses them, and he gives them instructions. Now jump down the chapter a little further to verse 23. What's happening in verse 23? A pretty famous story, right? There's a storm, yes. It, Jesus and the disciples are traveling by boat, and there is a, a furious storm that they encounter. And the Greek word for furious is, is megas. It's like mega. It means huge, big, impressive, loud, great. It's a big storm, okay? Make no mistake. And what does Jesus do? He calms the storm. I'm sure that you remember that story, right? So, so put a bookmark in chapter 8. We'll come back to it. Let's jump to, to Matthew 13. Give you a second to get there. So in Matthew 13, in the entire chapter, we're seeing Jesus do what? What's he doing? Speaking, preaching, teaching. Yeah. First thing is Jesus tells the parable of the sower. 
And then he explains the parable of the sower. Then he tells the parable of the weeds, and he explains the parable of the weeds. Then he tells the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. He tells the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the uh, pearl of great worth. He tells the parable of the net, right? Just one teaching after another. And, and if you look, I mean, this, that's a lot of teaching. This isn't a, a canned sermon that Jesus has used from some other rabbi. Jesus is trying to explain to people what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so on the spot, he's probably looking around and he sees somebody planting seeds in the distance. And he said, hey, look, the kingdom of heaven is like somebody who plants seeds. Oh, look over here, the lake. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that you cast out of your boat. He's using these analogies. And so it's quite a lot of teaching. It's some of the most well-known parables that we have. I imagine that Jesus would be pretty tired from it. So put a bookmark in that. Let's go to Matthew 15. And you're going to go to the end of Matthew 15. There's a pretty incredible miracle at the end of Matthew 15. Anybody there already? What's the miracle at the end of Matthew 15? Feeding the 4,000. Um, there's two times in Scripture where Jesus does this sort of mass feeding program, right? The feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. In this particular one, he takes seven loaves of bread and a few fish, multiplies that so that an entire crowd of people can eat. One of the differences between the 4,000 and the 5,000 is that in the 4,000 are a lot of people that were brought to Jesus to be healed. So the 4,000 is full of lame, crippled, and, and mute people that are coming to be healed. And that means that these people who are disabled in biblical times probably didn't get regular meals. They were very dependent upon the grace and charity of other people to eat, to have clothes, to have shelter. And yet here, Jesus provides for 4,000 of them. And I imagine that would be tiring work. If you think the last time that you volunteered at the homeless shelter in E-Town or on a soup line somewhere, it's, it's tiring work. It's not just tiring because of the physical labor, it's tiring because of the emotional toll of talking with people and, and listening to them and hearing what's going on in their life and praying with them. And I've never healed somebody, but I assume that that would take a, a bit out of you as well, right? Jesus does all that. So put a bookmark in that. And let's go to John 4. It's the last one. This should be pretty familiar to you because a few weeks back, I showed you a clip from the series, The Chosen, and we watched this story sort of unfold before us on the screen. It's a story where Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman by Jacob's well. It's odd because it's both a woman and a Samaritan. Both of those things would have gotten in the way of Jesus having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with this person. He shares with the woman that he's aware of her sin and that there is a day coming when the division between the Samaritans and the Jews won't matter anymore. On that day, Jesus and, and God is only concerned that his followers are worshiping in spirit and truth. 
And then Jesus tells her his identity as Messiah, which is a pretty incredible thing. One of the first people to hear it is a Samaritan, an outsider. And she runs to her whole village to tell them all about it. So you remember that story too, right? All right, so we got our bookmark in that. Now, we're familiar with all these spots. Go back to Matthew 8. The man with leprosy. What was Jesus doing right before the man with leprosy came? He was on the mountainside. And that's Bible code for being alone, resting, or praying. Something that Jesus often did was depart from the crowds and go to the mountain or go to a quiet place to be alone. I look down to Matthew 8, 23. Jesus calms the storm. What's Jesus doing right before he calms the storm? He's sleeping. Right. Matthew 13. A couple pages past. Teaching all those parables. What's Jesus doing right before he's teaching and answering questions and explaining the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, he comes out and leaves the house and sits by the lake. Matthew 15, feeding 4,000 people. What's Jesus doing right before this miracle? He's sitting on the mountainside. Bible code for being alone, praying or resting. And John 4, the woman at the well. Why was Jesus at the well when the Samaritan woman came to fill her water jars? Verse 6, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well to rest. Now, I'm pulling different stories out of Scripture in different places, making us jump all around the gospel to see them, but I'm not even choosing every single story or every single spot that I could make us jump to. I could tell you more Jesus stories that begin with rest. I could direct you to Jonah, resting beneath the shade of a tree that God made for him to rest. I could show you Elijah resting in a cave, being fed by angels. I could show you Jacob sleeping and dreaming of a ladder. The list can go on and on and on. But I don't need to tell you all the stories. I just need you to open your eyes and see the point, see the pattern in the scriptures. Because once you see the pattern, you can't unsee the pattern. Now when you start reading scripture, start noting to yourself how often these big stories that we all know, we're all familiar with, that our kids make flannel graphs of and do crafts about, how many of them start with rest. How many times does Jesus leave what he's doing, the people that he's with, to rest? And why? Why does he do it? I have to believe it's to prepare for the very next thing. That's why he met the woman at the well, because he was there resting. How did Jesus get to have a conversation about being living water? because he asked her for a drink of water because he was thirsty from the journey. Doors are opening because of slowing down 
unpacking the schedule, building rest into our lives so that we're prepared for the task, the work, the mission, the relationship, or the person that God is calling you to. And that is the thing that I want to warn you against this morning, is that when we get too busy, we are missing the person that God has sent to cross our path. When we are too busy, it becomes that much easier to ignore the person who is homeless and asking for a couple bucks at the stoplight, the person who has a flat tire on the side of the road, the person who comes up to you in church and looks like they need to talk. When we are too busy, it becomes that much easier to miss it. Don't miss it. We will sit here in church on Sundays and we will pray for opportunity. And on Monday, we will pack our schedules so that opportunity cannot find us. How serious do you want to be about being used by God? Now to end, I have a couple of hints for rest for you, just like I've done the other times. Number one, go to bed early enough to get the sleep you need. If you get up at 5.30, but you go to bed at 1.30, you're gonna be tired. If you get up at 5.30, go to bed at 9.30, right? Do the math and figure out when you should be going to bed. Number two, listen to your body. This is something that my wife tells me all the time. It's something that I'm terrible at. One of the things that I've learned about my body is that I don't often feel stress in the same way that other people do. You can tell when people get stressed out. I don't exhibit those same characteristics often. But what I've learned is when I'm stressed, I'm tired. I get so tired and I just wanna go to bed. And so now that I've learned that, I know that when I'm tired, I need to ask myself the question, what's causing me stress or what's causing me anxiety, okay? Listen to your body. It is telling you more than you're often letting it. Number three, during times of extreme stress, learn how to push pause, how to stop, and how to rest. That may be one of the hardest things that you could ever do, is in the midst of tragedy, or hardship, whatever that extreme stress is, is to slow it down. But try. Number four is another really difficult thing, and I'm not going to pretend that it's not hard. When you go to bed at night, in faith, turn over every concern that you have to the Lord. Think about what keeps you up at night. What is the things that are racing through your brain that are not letting you go to sleep. God, I need to give this to you. God, I need to lay this at your feet. God, I cannot get to sleep. I need peace of mind so that I can sleep. God, you tell me to cast my burdens on you. I'm doing that right now. And you say it over and over and over. You pray it over and over and over. It takes practice. But cast the things that burden you on the Lord so that you can sleep. Number five, take a nap. I mean, some of you shouldn't because you're at work and you'll get in trouble. 
but some of you have a schedule that allows you to take a nap when you're tired. So take a nap. Number six, identify your major points of stress. What is it that causes you stress? You know, we're often a glutton for pain. We're often the, the person that signs up for the thing that we hate. We sign up for the thing that causes us a stress. And so rather than say, oh yeah, this causes me stress, I'm gonna figure out something else to do. We just go right back to the thing that causes us stress. So if there's something that stresses you out and you're able to not do that thing, choose something different to do. Sometimes the things that stress us out the most are things like serving other people and volunteering. It's not even the things that we do for our work and for our job and for our living. So find something that breathes life into you, not that takes life away from you. When I was growing up, we were at a church plant and we had to take a class that identified our giftedness so we could serve in the church. And one of the things that was said in that class that's always stuck with me is that if you're serving within your giftedness, it doesn't feel like serving, right? So find something that feels good to do. That doesn't mean that there aren't hard things you have to do. Don't hear me say that, all right? I, hope you, I think you know that I'm not saying that. Uh, find a hobby that you enjoy doing that breathes life into you, something that's not work, that you can just have fun with, that brings you mental rest. Uh, number eight, practice the Sabbath. I know on the Sabbath you come here, but that's not all the Sabbath is supposed to be. It's not just to gather together as a community of people to worship God. The Sabbath is meant to be a break from the regular and the routine. I heard a, a podcast recently where they were talking about taking the Lord's name in vain. And they were digging into the, the Greek of what this would mean. And the way that they explained it was not that there was a specific word that you could use to take the Lord's name in vain. It was when you took something that was meant to be holy and you made it regular. You made it normal. It was no longer holy. That's something that we've done with the Sabbath is that we've made it another regular normal day when it's supposed to be a day set aside for holiness. Even God set aside one day for rest. We can do the same. Number nine, last one. Get a good checkup from the doctor to determine if there's a physiological or emotional reason why you can't rest. Sometimes that's the case. Some of us struggle with anxiety, depression, and other things. And we need actual help from doctors in order to get past that. We can't rest because of it, because of the way we're made. So go to the doctor if you need to. Don't be afraid of that. There's no reason a church should ever shame somebody for going to the doctor for that. The day is gone when we shame one another for mental health. Our mental health is way too important for that. That's all I have this morning on rest. I'd like for us to pray, but again, I'm gonna ask you the question that I asked you a couple of times in the sermon as a way to close. What if slowing down and unpacking our schedule 
and building rest into our lives actually prepares us for the task, the work, the mission, the relationship, or the person that God has called us to. Let's pray. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.